0: All right, the title of my message is A Little Leaven, A Little Leaven, and um, I wanted to take verses one through eight um, in one chunk this week. Um, As it turns out, I'm going to kind of uh, revise that just a little bit, and I think I'm going to tackle the first six verses today, and then uh, next week we'll finish out the chapter with kind of a part two. Um, So A Little Leaven Part One. Um As we move into First Corinthians chapter five, after several months of uh, dealing with the divisiveness in Corinth, the quarreling, all that went along with that, the teaching of Paul to build these people in Christ, the rebuke, the loving rebuke, um, the sarcastic rebuke that we just saw in the last couple of weeks, we move into a very different type of section where Paul is dealing with um, something that he 's heard and it 's not good in fact. There's some shocking information that's revealed in our passage about the church in Corinth. We might call it Christianity gone wild, right? I mean, here is a church where uh, this is a really messy situation. But despite the mess that we'll get into, despite the mess, um, if if the Corinthians were going to get on Google and write their own review, their own evaluation, they would give themselves... Five stars. Glowing review. They see themselves as spiritual giants. But, of course, Paul has revealed, in fact, that they're spiritual infants. And the proof of this is what they are tolerating in their church. Now, as many of you know, the month of June has been designated Pride Month in our culture. A month to celebrate all things LGBTQ+. plus. There are parades, there are loads of programming in the media. Same-sex issues are finding their way more and more, even into children's lives. The recent film Light Year by Disney promotes a same-sex relationship without apology. Gender preferences and personal custom pronouns are all the rage right now, and many of you that work in the workplace have had to go through some diversity training because people want this to happen. Christians speak out on these issues and are immediately muzzled, ostracized, or even quote-unquote canceled, if not attacked and vilified through words. But that's the culture, friends. The culture has never followed Christ. Despite maybe our rosy pictures of Ozzie and Harriet back in the 50s. Our culture has never followed Christ. It doesn't love Jesus. We should kind of expect that, right? But the problem is that even in the church, we find moral degradation spreading at an alarming pace. Sexual abuse running rampant across denominations in our country. After all, uh, the, the mainline churches, and I'm talking all of the mainline churches, most of them have all fallen to the same-sex mandate in our culture. There have only been a couple of holdouts, and even one of the last of those, the United Methodist Church, has just gone through a giant split in its ranks, starting a whole nother denomination called the Global Methodist Church. And the conservatives are leaving the United Methodist Church over this issue, amongst others. There are many churches, even now in our city, the city of Indianapolis, that not only tolerate, but celebrate sexual sinfulness. And you can find them. It doesn't take long to find them. Now, to be clear... Anyone, when I say anyone, I mean that anyone is welcome to come through these doors and sit and hear the gospel in this place. Anyone. They will be loved despite how they look, what they say, what their pronouns are, what their belief system is. But once someone crosses the line to become a follower of Jesus, a brother or a sister in the family of God, things have to change. We put off the old and we put on the new. That doesn't happen all at once. That happens over time, little by little, day by day. The church at Corinth wasn't into that at least at this point in time. I want you to notice two points if you're taking notes this morning. The first, the problem revealed in verses 1 and 2. The problem revealed. And then secondly, uh, the punishment declared in verses 3 through 5. Let's look at the problem revealed, and let me read verses 1 and 2 again. It's actually reported, Paul says... That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. That's the word for Gentiles. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is a very abrupt beginning to chapter 5, isn't it? And it kind of highlights for us The importance and the urgency of this issue for the Apostle Paul. You know, to have grown up in the city of Corinth was to have grown up essentially in a moral cesspool. And you think the culture is getting worse and worse. Um, The whole geography of the city of Corinth was dominated by sex. There was a 2,000-foot hill right prominently in the center of the city. It dominated the skyline of Corinth. And built on top of that hill was the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Should have been called something else, the Greek goddess of lust. She didn't have anything to do with love. History tells us that 1,000 priestess prostitutes served at the temple during the day and then down in the streets at night. The presenting problem here in verse 1 is that there is sexual immorality. The word there in the original language is pornea, which refers to all premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual union. Premarital, before marriage, extramarital, outside of marriage, And unnatural, what the Bible calls unnatural. Same-sex relationships, etc. The general issue here is immorality. The specific issue, we're told, was that of incest. A man, the Bible says, has his father's wife. The phrase, his father's wife, indicates this was not the person's natural mother, it was his stepmother. That's how the language works here. And this particular illicit union was forbidden by the law. Turn uh, to in your Bibles for just a moment to Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. I want you to see two passages here. Look at Leviticus chapter 18, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus. <laughs> or you could go Leviticus Numbers, too, if you wanted to go that way. Um, Leviticus 18, verses 7 and 8. Here, this is from the law, the law of Moses. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's. Nakedness. So notice the distinction there in the law between those commands between your mother and your father's wife. Also, notice over in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And uncovering the nakedness is, an, is another way of saying to have sex. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 30. Deuteronomy twenty-two thirty. 30. Again, this is a recounting of the law. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Because of a one, the one flesh principle, um, disrespecting your father by, by engaging in sexual relationships with your stepmother was, was the same thing as, as sexually offending or violating your father because of the one flesh and, and the Bible says this is forbidden. Now, not only was this forbidden under Jewish law, this was, at the time, even forbidden under Roman law. And the Roman historian named Cicero tells us about that. So this was something that was shocking to the Jews. It was shocking to the Romans as well. And in fact, even in our day, as depraved as we are getting in our society, incest is still something that's largely frowned upon in our culture. Um, Although there have been exceptions, notable exceptions. Uh, Some of you may remember years ago uh, when um, Woody Allen uh, became involved with his adopted daughter, Mia Farrow. and, And that caused quite a scandal. It was scandalous. It's still scandalous in our culture today, but not many things are. Anymore. Well, even in an environment like Corinth, where you could do just about anything, the one thing that crossed the line in the mind of the Corinthians was that things like this would be taking place. So even their pagan neighbors were disgusted by this behavior, repudiated this behavior. So here's the problem, but we don't actually get to the real issue until we get to the first sentence of verse. Two. So after having presented this problem in Corinth, Paul goes on not to diminish in any way the immorality. He's going to deal with that in just a minute. But he gets to the issue that Paul is most concerned about is the next thing he says. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. This is unbelievable. That a church could grow so dull. To God's clearest directives in his law. And by the way, just because Roe versus Wade was overturned this week in the Supreme Court does not mean that all of a sudden Christians suddenly got clarity on abortion. We don't have to take our cues with regard to morality from what our government says is right or wrong, right? God's word trumps and supersedes man's law in those areas absolutely every time but but these are clear directives put in the mosaic law this church is so stuck on themselves as we've been learning they are so taken with their own abilities that they not only tolerate this going on in their church but they are boastful arrogant about it and that's truly shocking and that's truly sad that that would happen in a Christian church. The problem, as you see in verse 1, is that it was being reported. It it, It was common knowledge. Paul says, we're hearing about this. Paul was not in Corinth when he's writing this letter. He's hearing about this. Notice that it's in the present tense. The man has his father's Wife. It's not something that happened in the past. It's happening right now. It's an ongoing situation. And despite that, the Corinthians are boasting when Paul says they should have been mourning. Mourning. What allows a church to get like this? What had happened to Corinth since Paul founded this church? that they would be boasting when they should have been crying out to God. When they were so caught up in their quarreling about whether, you know, Paul is the best or Apollos is the best or Peter is the best, that they're completely blind to the issues that really needed attention. Perhaps this individual, we don't know, some have speculated, maybe he was a key figure in the church. Maybe he was someone who had given a lot of money to the church. Maybe someone who was high up in leadership. And as a result, the church was totally unprepared to deal with the issue. Or perhaps they had begun to believe that when you became a Christian, you could do anything you want with anyone you wanted, anytime you wanted. Were they falling into that trap of Gnosticism? That it's only the spirit that's important. The body doesn't really matter. Or were they falling into the trap of seeing toleration as a mark of love? Oh, we see that in our culture, isn't it? If you don't tolerate me, you must not be loving. And God's a God of love. It's one of the arguments that they throw at us, right? Brothers and sisters, remember the writer of Ecclesiastes, when we went through that book, said there's a time to plant and a time to water and a time to sow and a time to laugh. And a time to cry. And for the Corinthians, this was a time to cry, and they were laughing. Whenever a church, any church, our church, doesn't mourn over its sin, especially the sin discovered within our own body, then that church is on the brink of extinction. God takes the purity of His people seriously, doesn't He? Look back uh, for just a moment at Lamentations chapter two, and uh, just after Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Lamentations chapter two, and verse fourteen. The prophet Jeremiah here writes in Lamentations two fourteen, "Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions." They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. God's saying here the visions of your prophets were false and were worthless. Why? Because they didn't expose the people's sin. They were false and misleading. Just telling them what they wanted to hear. Well, we've got churches full of leaders like that today. Just telling you what you want to hear. Revelation chapter 2. Look back uh, at the church at Thyatira for just a moment. Revelation chapter 2. Come on, get your, get your Bible exercise in here. Revelation chapter 2. Somebody's like, yeah, watch me on my, on my smartphone. Boop, boop, I'm there. <laughs> Revelation 2, Verse 18. And to so the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual. Immorality, it's the same word in 1 Corinthians 5. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." These are the words, according to the text, of the risen Lord Jesus to a church in the first century. So why would it be any different as we look at the circumstances around us today? The bottom line this morning is this, that as Christians, we must not tolerate sin anymore within the church's that we are involved in any more than we would tolerate it in our own lives we must not tolerate sin in ephesians 5 11 and 12 paul said to the church at ephesus these words take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And back in verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Why? It's improper that this be named among you. Some translations say that you would hear even a hint of it. It's improper. It's not rights among God's people. Mourning and grief should have been the response. And laughter and casualness and arrogance is what they found. Interestingly here, back in our text in 1 Corinthians 5, the word for mourning is the word that would be used for the loss of a loved one. Paul is saying, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you rather have been like somebody who just lost his wife? Or his son? Or his dad? Shouldn't that be what it's like around you? you no know, brothers and sisters, whenever grief is real, whenever grief is real, action will be swift. And it was the absence of grief that led to the absence of their action. The problem is very clear. Let me sum it up for you. A member of the church in Corinth was guilty of a sin that even his neighbors didn't practice or tolerate. The testimony of the church in Corinth had been greatly diminished, and it was carrying on business just like usual when it should have been crushed, filled with grief, and ready to take action. Secondly, verses 3 through 5. Notice the punishment Activity like was going on in Corinth cannot go unchecked. No sensible mom or dad would allow a very violent disease to run rampant through their children without isolation, without attacking the problem. And Paul gives a very clear directive to the Corinthians on how to deal with this. Deliver this man. To Satan. What a shocking statement. What does it mean? Well, first, before we talk about that, notice a couple of things about what the church is doing. The church is taking this action as a whole. Do you see that? When you are assembled, when you are together you take this action it's interesting that in matthew chapter 18 which is discussing church discipline as well the name of jesus is also referenced like it is here in the name of jesus over matthew 18 it's where two or three gather together in my name now i know that verse is used a zillion different ways but it's in the context of church discipline in matthew chapter 18 The power of Jesus. See that? The power of our Lord Jesus. And even Paul's spirit are referenced here. They are are lending authority. They are lending approval to this action. It is the right thing to do, church. And this action is backed up by the apostle. It is backed up by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the right thing to do. So what does it mean to deliver this man to Satan? There's a sense in which belonging to the church provides some measure of protection against Satan. Jesus prayed this way. Do you remember in His prayer in John 17 in the garden? He prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. And that's something that happens Within the church, we are, we are protected in a, other, other than from uh, the will of the Lord to, to allow Satan, like he did Job, right? To do something in our life for a specific reason, for his glory. Other than that, there is a protective protectiveness that comes from being a part of the church. So whenever someone is put out of the church... Due to unrepentant sin like this, and we've had to do this right uh, from time to time uh, across our history. This has to be done, and when this is done, we are putting that person out of any protection that they once had in the church. Paul talked about this in another place too, um, with regard to two other men. Let me just read it for you. It's in First Timothy chapter one in verse twenty, dealing with two guys named Alexander. And Hymenaeus. Do you remember their names? So here's what he says. First uh, 1 Timothy 1.20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, back in our text, the purpose of turning this man over to Satan, the Bible says, is for the destruction of the flesh. Do you see that? For the destruction of the flesh. Now, some, some have taken that to mean that this man will die. Now, that, that would be really solemn, wouldn't it? If we put someone out of the church expecting them to die because of that action. That's sobering. But friends, this has happened. This has happened. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Sin against God? Dead. Dead. Even Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll get to later, uh, in regards to the Lord's table, that for some people, misusing, mishandling, taking the table in an unworthy manner, some are sick and some are dead. Right? Now, is that what Paul means here? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Uh, The word flesh here, the destruction of the flesh, is probably better taken, better translated as sinful nature. Sinful nature. Especially considering the last part of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, um, the word flesh doesn't necessarily in the Bible always mean our skin, our body, the material, physical side of us. Sometimes the word flesh is used to talk about the spiritual side of us, the sinful nature that we had and that we struggle with uh, through life. And handing this person over to Satan does not necessarily mean that they're going to end up in hell, obviously, from what the Scripture says here, right? In fact, the hope is That through the destruction of his flesh, whatever that means, and I, I take it to mean the destruction of his sinful nature, his sinful way of living, the destruction of that, however that happens, he will end up in heaven. That's the hope. That's the hope. And that's an important point to make with regard to church discipline. Whenever we put someone out of our church because of unrepentant sin, it is not about punishing that individual. It's not about treating them harshly. It's not about getting some kind of revenge on that person. It's about their restoration. Because when we in a sense, turn them over to Satan when we put them outside the church in the realm where Satan operates, the prince of the power of the air, and the people who who work disobedience, when we put a person back into that uh, category by dismissing them from the local church, we are praying that the effects of that in that person's life will Help them to come to their spiritual senses and that they will repent and turn and return to the church. You know, many times it's because of such an isolation that a person comes to their senses. You'll remember the story of the prodigal son. It wasn't until he was where? In the pig pen. Friendless and moneyless that he came to his senses and repented. And he was greeted by his father with open arms, just as the church would receive a repentant sinner who had been put out of the church due to sin. We would receive that person back with open arms. Forgiveness complete if they repented of their sin. In other words, the discipline is for their good as well as for the church's good. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Um, I'm going I'm to pick up there next Sunday and continue on with this because there's a picture that Paul's going to give us that helps to understand this even a little further. And there's a principle at the end that it helps us to know how we're to do this um, when we have to do it. So we're going to deal with this more. The, the talk's not over we have more to learn we have more to say about this subject but we're going to close here for this morning i'm going to ask the praise team to come back for our final song and while they're coming i want you to think with me for just a moment about the implications for these verses you know this already but friends people do not care if you love jesus People don't care if you go to church. But for sure they care when you say something is wrong. Sinful. And brothers and sisters, sin is a problem because God said it is a problem. And there is a punishment which has to be acted out upon the problem. It's not comfortable. It's not fun we never do it with glee in fact most of the time i'm up here in tears when we have to do this but we have to do it for the sinner's good and it's vital that we do it it's not a popular thing to put people out of church due to sin we've had people leave our church because we practice church discipline i don't know if you know that or not But friends, if we are going to reach our community with the gospel, unbelievers need to see a distinction between the church and the world. If we're just like the world, if we tolerate sexual immorality, if we celebrate it, if we're proud about it, They will walk out our doors and conclude that Jesus doesn't really make a difference at all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to shine our light. Why? Because it's dark out there, people. And it's getting darker every day, just like the Lord said it would. And we do it so that men and women will see our good works. That's what Jesus said. Even the good work of church discipline. And find that Jesus does make a difference. That holiness is a big deal. That the purity of the church does bring about the fruit that the Lord wants to see in his, in his body. they'll find that Jesus makes a difference. That's what Paul's going to teach us, especially in the next part of our text. If you looked ahead at all, you'd notice in verses 6, 7, and 8, one of the wonderful things that's inserted right in the middle of that picture there about leaven, a little leaven, is that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that he has been slain for us. And brothers and sisters, do you realize that if we were to just If we just wanted to reach a crowd, and so we're just going to change the way we do things around here, and we're going to stop talking about sin, and we're just going to talk about things that people want to talk about. We're just going to talk about the economy and money, and we're just going to talk about relationships all the time. We're we're going to talk about this, So we're not going to deal with anything controversial or anything hard we're going to skip those we're going to go from chapter four right over to chapter eight we're not going to deal with with five six and seven if we're going to be like that then why did jesus die why did he shed his blood we have to show the difference and that means we have to be pure And that means, first of all, we fight against sin in our own life. And then, when we see sin in the body, we don't ignore it. We lovingly address it, humbly address it. Because there, for the grace of God, go you and I. Right? So we humbly, patiently address sin. We plead for our brother or our sister to turn away and come back to truth, to come back to righteousness. And if they do, that's the way the church is supposed to function. And if they don't, we have a roadmap of what Jesus wants us to do and the escalation of that pressure from the church until we turn that person out into the domain of Satan where life could be really, really tough, where he could really suffer, but where hopefully he or she will come to repentance, and their soul will be saved on the day of judgment. It's a tough text, and uh, next week is a lot more beautiful. This is a little more of the ugly side this week. Next week will be a lot more beautiful. But there's some more ugly stuff coming. And we'll deal with it all because it's God's word and because we want to be more like our Savior, the precious Lamb of God, the Lamb of glory. Let's stand. We'll sing our final hymn to him in praise and then be dismissed with a benediction.